Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben from the Lean Blog. Thanks for joining me for episode number nine of the Lean Blog Podcast. It's November 6th, 2006, and I'm very excited today. My guest is David Mann. He's the author of an outstanding book. Uh, it's called Creating a Lean Culture, Tools to Sustain Lean Conversions, uh, a book that was awarded the Shingo Prize for Excellence in Manufacturing um, in 2006. Uh, David's been with Steelcase in uh, Michigan since 1987, uh, was involved in the very beginning of their lean initiatives, which he's going to talk about today. Uh, today, in addition to working with uh, manufacturing within Steelcase, uh, David leads an internal team applying lean principles uh, to business processes throughout the enterprise. Um, he's a regional board member of the Association for Manufacturing Excellence, serves on the board of their Target magazine. Um, he's also an examiner for the Shingo Prize um, and is, among other things, an adjunct faculty member at Ohio State University and their Fisher College of Business. He's a frequent speaker on lean management. Um, so I'm very happy to have him here today. And as always, if you have questions for me or for any of my guests, uh, you can contact me. Uh, through the website leanblog.org. Well, David, thanks for joining us here on the podcast. It's great to have you with us. Uh, thank you, Mark. I appreciate the opportunity. I want to talk a little bit um, before we get into some of the topics in your book, Creating a Lean Culture, if you wouldn't mind talking a little bit about how you got started personally learning about lean in your career and, and how your background as a, a social scientist you know, kind of plays into the perspective you had in lean over your career. Okay. Um, perhaps the first thing to say is that I've always been sort of a steam shovel watcher mm-hmm. in that I've been interested in the way things work mm-hmm. um, and uh, have also been interested in operations. I got I was asked to help with um, communication for a lean initiative at Steelcase about 10 years ago, um, and I was happy to do that, and as I got into uh, that role into those tasks, I, of course, had to learn something about what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so spent time with uh, the, the lean project teams that were working on value stream conversions in really at that time, really one of our one of our plants at, in our headquarters um, location in Michigan, Grand Rapids, Michigan. And uh, so I, we were um Telling people about lean, talking about a case for change, uh, which is um, an externally based case for change, which is pretty important in persuading people that there was something different that we had to do, that we didn't really have a lot of choice. And, and, and those are some business pressures that were on steel case at the time? Right. Um, we, we call them the three C's, uh, competitors, uh, capital markets, and uh, customers. Customers were looking for more value. Competitors were... Um, were closing the gap um, where there were gaps with us, and the company had gone public a few years earlier, and uh, our stock price was, uh, as a reflection of how the capital markets viewed our performance, left something to be desired, and mm-hmm. um, almost all the employees were stockholders. There was a gift of stock uh, to everyone when the company um, did go public, and so there was pretty widespread understanding of how the street was looking at the financial performance of the company. So we use that external case for change. And as we got further in that, um, I 
Um, and I've been involved in organizational change for, uh, you know, for a long time now, like mm-hmm. 30 years in various roles in various places. And I began to see as we were doing this communication work that, um, that there were what you would, what you would conventionally call change management problems. That is people were saying, ah, you know, I'm not really sure I, <laughs> I'm not really sure I want to do this. Right. You know, what, what's the story with this? So, um, there was a gap there, and it's always been something that has been a professional activity of mine and an interest of mine. So we started thinking about, um, so how would we go about preparing people for change? And um, it, it has always seemed to me, um, and others, I mean, this is no unique insight of mine, but it's always seemed to me that um, if you want to influence people in an organization, the the highest leverage way to do that is to influence their um, their immediate supervisors. And mm-hmm. in this case, because we were talking about a very substantial change for people on the shop floor, specifically because the, the change to lean was going to involve changing uh, the pay system for um, production operators. The mm-hmm. company had a, like, I don't know, a 75, 80-year history of paying piece rate. Uh-huh. Which is, you know, sort of a recipe for overproduction. Sure, sure. Didn't really make much sense to continue with that. So that, that was a very big deal for people, as you might imagine. So, um, we needed to uh, develop a way to help supervisors lead their people through, um, this change, um, from the, um, sort of conventional, you know, state of the art mid fifties, um, batch and queue system with the, um, the uh, pay uh, system to match it, that sure, is the piece sure. rate system, into lean and into um, a different way of a different uh, compensation system. So we we developed a pretty slick way of, um, of preparing supervisors um, to, first of all, identify the questions that people would likely have of them and then mm-hmm. prepare them to answer those questions in their own words. And so that was all fine, and I'd, I'd then go out on the floor um, and and see how things were going with the supervisors and things, see how things were going um, with these initial projects. And what we found was that we'd done a pretty effective job of helping supervisors explain um, the case for change and explain what this change to lean was likely to mean for people um, and how it was going to come down. But uh, the, when when we'd go out and look to see, uh, again, how they were doing, um, we found the change management stuff was fine, as I just said. But the lean projects were like, you know, as soon as the project team left, the lean projects were mm-hmm. falling apart, like, mm-hmm. completely. And we'd had very good advice. We'd worked with uh, lean consultants, all ex-Toyota or Toyota-trained Mm-hmm. consultants from the TWI network. And uh, we had, you know, technically perfectly fine um, lean designs and had gone about implementing them in a reasonable kind of way. Um, but they were falling apart, as I mentioned, when the project teams left because what we found is that we prepared supervisors to lead people um, through the change to lean, but we really hadn't understood what it was that they needed to do when, they, when we got there. Mm-hmm. So... Um, what followed that was, and this was with a lean team, a, 
sort of a corporate operations lean team of mm-hmm. just like three or four people, and then a lean leader, a lean technical leader in each of the plants. Um, and we sort of puzzle what, you know, what are we seeing? Why are leaders doing what they need to do? What are our consultants telling us, which was largely focus on the process, focus on the process. Mm-hmm. But they were unable to tell us really what that meant. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> which was which was interesting. It, it, I likened it to the Toyota guys were sort of like fish, and we were asking them, so tell me what it's like being able to breathe underwater. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, it was something that they had grown up with, and they really didn't – they were unable to, to help us, not because they knew the answers and were withholding it, like some sort of – you know, Socratic sensei, but they just, they didn't know, they didn't know how to help us, you know what to tell us. It kind of reminds me of the old story of, uh, this is going back a ways baseball wise, but Ted Williams, you know, obviously a great hitter translated into being a horrible manager and a horrible hitting coach because he couldn't explain to somebody that didn't have that natural, uh, gift that he had. Right, right. It's, um, you know, they couldn't tell us the recipe. Same, same kind of thing. So we, um, we, Spent probably three or four years, um, and we were spent most of our time out on the floor with plant managers or value stream managers, supervisors, team leaders, just sort of trying to understand what what was going on, um, watching what they were doing, mm-hmm. um, trying to make the translation from what we had learned. You know, from the usual sources, what we'd learned from reading, what we'd learned from our, uh, from our time with our, with our sense eyes, and, and trying to apply that to what we were seeing in front of us. And over that period of time, through really, a, an extended period of trial and error, uh, we, uh, we began to understand that we needed really a different behavioral Recipe, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, we needed to be able to help supervisors, value stream managers, plant managers, team leaders, all of them understand. So what are the things that you need to do if you want to sustain these lean conversions that we had continued to put in pretty much one after the other? I mm-hmm. think during this period, um, we probably did 30 to 40 value stream conversions across a number of plants. Mm-hmm. And that, and we came to um, this sort of trial and error set of conclusions that we needed something that that we later came to call a lean management system mm-hmm. that needed to complement the lean production system. Because if we had, if we didn't do that, we had changed um, we had changed the the arrangement of the floor. We had changed the uh, material flow, the, how we treated inventory, how we thought about inventory. We changed the information flow in terms of going from multiple schedule points and an MRP-based mode of scheduling production to um, as as few schedule points as we could, in most cases one or, depending on the mm-hmm. process, a couple at the pacemaker. But we had um, supervisors who were still running after parts who felt uncomfortable if they didn't have several days' worth of material in their area, um, and operators um, who 
wanted to know what they were going to be doing for the week as opposed to what they were going to be doing for the next half hour. So we, we, we came to the conclusion that we needed, um, and I, and sort of coming to the conclusion is more in retrospect that we sort of worked our way into, we needed to give the, um, the people in leadership positions a, a better idea about what it was that they needed to do. Right. In, in order to manage in this new lean environment. Um, and we needed to give them the visual tools that would make it easy for anyone to see what the status of production was and, and later as we understood it more, mm-hmm. what the status of the non-production, um, operations were. Uh, and then, uh, we needed a way, uh, to close the loop on this focus, which was really focusing much more on process and much less on results, so that we needed a way to close the loop on what the the um, standard work for leaders mm-hmm. was was showing up as the leaders used the visual controls. So, what are you seeing? How does expected um, meet up with actual? And when actual falls short, then then work to understand why right. and and develop a process to follow up on that in a way that can actually bring change and and first stability and then improvement. Yeah. So it was it, we ended up with a system that really closes the loop on on process focus, which we had come to understand um, after you know being told repeatedly by our sensei you know focus on the process focus right. on the process. We finally came to understand what that meant, and that basically if you if you take care of your process. You know, your process will take care of you, mm-hmm. and you shouldn't really wait until the end of the day to understand how your process is working. Yeah. So it, in the book, I mean, it, it seems no accident that Chapter 3 right away is this idea of standard work for leaders as being an important part of that management system. Um, it seems like you know, being very reactive and fighting fires and um, – being kind of a traditional supervisor um, to, to transitioning into the the lean model of, of supervision. Um, I mean, the, the idea of you know we hear a lot about being a coach and, and being a different type of leader. Um, I've also seen resistance to the idea of standard work. You know, that standard work is something for everyone else to do, or you know, as engineers and you know, uh, I'm an engineer myself, so you know, sometimes I'll pick on engineers for being too focused on. Um, you know, the engineering aspects of lean. It sounds like, you know, you've been pushing that transition from engineering to the, the people side. Um, how, how do you work with that resistance that supervisors might have to, you know, to documenting what their daily activities are to, um, to moving in that approach of actually embracing standard work for themselves? Well, it's, um, it's a lot like other aspects of lean and that is it involves something of a leap of faith at some point. Like okay, I'm willing to try this, mm-hmm. um, but we had um, we had spent enough time um, uh, with these folks on the you know with the supervisors particularly and and with the others in leadership positions on the floor trying to sort of puzzle this out with them. And we said, look, so let you know how about if you what if you tried this? Um, so what if you tried writing down that. Um, that you know we put these visual controls in place and the and the first visuals that we used were pretty typical um, uh, production tracking charts mm-hmm. um, hour by hour charts is what we started out with the interval has has gotten smaller over time but um, why don't you start out with the hour by hour chart and 
and make sure that you're there um, at the hour by hour chart at least four times a day. And when you're there, you know, put your initials on it and mm-hmm. you know see what's going on and talk to the talk to the team leader. And if the hour by hour chart isn't filled out, then you know that the team leader is you know missing something. So yeah. you want to understand well, you know, what's happening, why is that, and and what can I do as the supervisor to help the team leader um, follow their standard work, which involves, among other things, um, filling out the uh, production tracking chart. So we said, so you know, so give it a try. And, and this was this was interesting. You know, we this these were all long-standing supervisors for the most part. Yeah. And they were really the sensei workaround. I mean, these guys <laughs> could pull rabbits out of hats. You know, but that was in an environment where we had extra everything. Right. You know, extra extra machines. Extra material, extra people, extra time, extra space, and and the the lean changes had really eliminated most of those extra things. Um, so it made their it had made their lives more difficult. Um, we what we suggested to them is look if you if you you know sort of take care of this system that that you've put in place, um, you know it it will make your work easier, um, and you also you also won't forget the kinds of things that, that you need to do to keep the system working because this, mm-hmm. these lean systems are, are um, I've always found them to be much higher maintenance in terms of needing more attention than a bash and queue system where you've got, you know, a, a several hours or maybe several days or who knows, you know, more than that of inventory between mm-hmm. operations. So um, over time, it made it made sense to the supervisors that their team leaders would have standardized work, because the team leaders um, uh, about eighty percent of their time is accounted for by what they're supposed to do in their standard work. There's some beginning of shift, some end of shift kind of activities, but a lot of it is then between startup and shutdown is is repetitive. You uh, mm-hmm. maintain a focus on standardized work in every workstation every day. Um, and you maintain production attack time, and you record um, the attack progress on on production tracking charts. So it's it's fairly repetitive, and it made sense to the supervisors that they that they help make the the expectations for what their team leaders were supposed to do explicit. Mm-hmm. Um, and it also gave their team leaders sort of a you know like a school crossing guard you know stop sign to hold up. When they're, when, when someone, whether it was a supervisor or, or someone on their team asked them to do something that would take them out of the area and take them away from their standard work. So the standardized work for team leaders, um, helped bring much more stability to the, mm-hmm. to the lean processes because there was someone there focusing on the process all the time. Right. Um, so with that, we were able to say, well, look, that you know that this is working for the for the team leaders, but if you don't um, if you don't act as the sort of the second level of guarantee for the integrity of the team leaders following their standard work, right? Um, then uh, go ahead. Oh, so you talk about that hierarchy. I thought that was one of the interesting things in the book of the the hierarchy of checks and. Audits, if you will, at different levels within the organization. Well, it's like it's it's very much like a lean assembly process. There's redundant quality checks built in. So, you know, um, I'm going to pass a I'm going to pass the work piece to you in the first 
part of your standard work is to mm-hmm. verify that I did the critical things in my standard work. Yeah. So that the most important thing in a in a standardized lean production process is is the people who are building the product following um, the lean process design, which is reflected in their standard work. Mm-hmm. And so you go up this up this um, this sort of system of checks and 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 reinforcements, where um, most of what the uh, team leader does is verifying adherence mm-hmm. um, uh, of the uh, of the production operators to their standard work, and then most of what the supervisor does, accounting for maybe 50% of the supervisor's time, is to monitor and guarantee the integrity, the the fidelity of observance of the of the uh, team leaders to their standard work, and similarly the value stream manager, maybe 25% of his or her time, they're following up on the supervisor's standard work. And whether plant managers or manufacturing executives, they don't have standard work in the same kind of mm-hmm. way um, in terms of the same kind of thing every day, but they, you know, they've got a list, sort of a checklist of what they look for when they're on the floor. Uh, you, made, you made a point earlier, um, I think it's worth emphasizing, or if you elaborate on, you talked about um, a manager coming and, and seeing that something hadn't happened. Let's say the hourly numbers weren't up on the chart, and you made the comment that, you know, they asked why didn't that happen or, you know, what could they do to help as opposed to, I think back to experiences I had with supervisors in pre-lean environments where, you know, if something went wrong, you yelled at somebody. You know, it was kind of more of a, you know, my role as supervisor is to punish you when something didn't happen as opposed to asking why. Or, you know, do you have some examples of maybe having the transition supervisors in, into that new way of, you know, asking why first instead of just jumping down someone's throat maybe? Well, um, something close to that. Um, one supervisor in particular had um, had taken a few days off. Uh, it was around one of the holiday periods of the year. I don't remember which one. Uh, and he came back, and his area was was completely out of control. He was he was building uh, his area built um, various kinds of freestanding desk units, and uh, you know it was a progressive build, you know, flow assembly line. Except there were, you know, there were partially built units all over the place on the floor, um, and people were running, I mean, not in some cases literally, but they were here and there trying to find parts. They were scavenging from uh, one unit to be mm-hmm. able to build mm-hmm. another, and, and the whole thing was really a mess. Yeah. Um, and uh, he worked for he worked for a, um, um, a, a very sharp value stream manager who sort of let him jump back into the fray and, and, you know, start expediting stuff and running around and, you know, trying to do engineering's job and production control's job and maintenance's mm-hmm. job. And um, he let him do that for a couple of days uh, before he said, hey, so why don't you try following your standard work? Mm-hmm. And and his standard work, of course, kept him in the area, um, kept him focused on on what was happening in his area, um, and uh, and he kept him using his uh, you know his two-way cell phone radio right. um, calling 
the support groups that were supposed to be working, you know, not for him in a direct reporting relationship, but were supposed to be supporting manufacturing, letting them know what the, you know, what was going on, what the problems were. He was there to direct his people not to be scavenging, but to, you know, but to, to build what was buildable in the sequence mm-hmm. that it came down. And, uh, and within a matter of a couple of days, um, uh, he, in, instead of this sort of expediting and, you know, trying to get more and more and more of everything right. and clogging the place, yep. um, he had, uh, uh, he had gotten it back to, um, its previous level of stability, um, because he'd understood what the problems were and he'd, um, communicated what he needed. That is, so, you know, find the cause of the problem mm-hmm. and, um, um, and resolve those causes. And he has been, this was several years ago. He's been a believer since then. Mm. So the idea is not to, you know, that by, by contrast, um, so this, uh, in an upholstery area, so sewing, um, uh, a fabric upholstery covers together. Um, one of the supervisors who was a second shift supervisor, so afternoon and, and night shift supervisor, um, found that, that, that enough of the sewing machines had broken down that he was going to mm-hmm. be in serious trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, so he got in his truck and he drove to Detroit, which is oh, like a two and a half, three hour drive. So he was basically right. gone all night, but he went and got the sewing machine parts <laughs> by George. Mm-hmm. And that was the sort of thing that was, uh, that was applauded in those so days. So he was being a hero. Sort of, exactly. The heroic efforts. Yeah. Well, if you go up to that area now, um, there are marked squares on the floor where there are backup sewing machines. Um, um, I'm not an expert on sewing machines, but they have um, known sort of a known uh, level of reliability. Mm-hmm. And now when one goes down, instead of trying to take it apart and put it back together yourself, um, they wheel it out. They wheel a new one in. Um, they send the one that needs repair out to the a competent yeah. um, location to repair it. And they keep running. So they, you know, they've understood, you know, what the, what the nature of the process is, where there are predictable problems. Uh, they've put countermeasures in place to respond to the problems. They're not yelling at people, you know, they're not making them stay four hours extra, um, to get production out. Right. Um, they're, you know, they're able to maintain a, a stable process. So that, so that, uh, you know, manufacturing people, like many other people, are um, in my experience, are quite pragmatic. And if you right, right. can demonstrate to them something that works, they'll do it. Um, Once so you get them to take that leap of faith and give it a try. Yeah. Now, maybe one last topic before we wrap up here. Um, you know, talk about managers, supervisors making the transition. And in the book there with uh, the chapter in Standard Work for Leaders, I think you, you mentioned a number like 10 to 20% of supervisors just can't or choose not to make that transition into that new way of thinking. Um, what kind of time frame would, would you typically, um, you know, use for evaluating or, you know, how much patience um, have you or your company had in, in evaluating supervisors before you decide, you know what, this, this person needs to be moved on maybe? Um, that's a good question. The, one of the things that happens when you make expectations explicit is that you also make it really easy to see when the expectations are being met or not met. 
and when they're not met. And so, and so leader standard work would be an example of explicit expectations, just like operator standard work is mm-hmm. an example of explicit expectations. And so as with any other um, situation where, where actual is falling short of expected, um, you want to, you know, you want to ask yourself five questions. Has this, has this person been trained? Right. Um, do they do they know it's expected of them? Do they have the proper tools? Do they have the proper material? And are they getting feedback on their performance? I mean, you can do that in a physical situation. You can also do it when you've got someone in a supervisory position. Mm-hmm. And you can very quickly see, you know, this is you know this is working, or this isn't working. And if it isn't working, and I take the appropriate corrective action based on you know this quick five part um, assessment. Right. Um, is is change happening or not? Um, so, so, it's, it's, it, so it sounds like some of what you're describing comes back to responsibility of higher up management to make sure they're not setting vague expectations and saying you need to be lean without explaining maybe what that means in detail of how they're supposed to operate and then coming back after three months and saying well you're not cutting it. I mean that sounds like that would be the complete opposite or a really unfair. Uh, way of treating people the opposite of, of what you're describing. Huh? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, lean is about smaller quantities more frequently. So I'm going to look at it. I'll look at a day's worth of uh, of leader behavior. Um, I've I've got an accountability process that allows me to um, make assignments based on uh, the what's been going on in the process the previous day. Um, I'll assignments are typically going to go to supervisors. Are they able to get their assignment done? Are they able to get this this sort of bite-sized improvement task completed? You know, either they are or they aren't. Um, the value stream manager would typically take a quick look at the supervisor's standardized work mm-hmm. document that's been, you know, filled out at the end uh, during the course of the day, see whether the supervisor is, in fact, following their standard work, take a look at the quality of entries on the production tracking charts, um, take a look at the quality of entries in terms of understanding the process. Uh, yeah. the, an entry being like a, a problem statement in a you know in a in a problem solving uh, discipline. You know how well do people understand what they're doing? Are they taking the appropriate action? Do they understand their process? Those things can those things become clear much faster in this highly process dependent mm-hmm. environment. That you create when you create a lean management system sure. that mirrors the production system. It, it so, having said, oh, go ahead. Well, having said that, it, it becomes pretty clear in a in a matter of just a few weeks mm. um, whether you've got leaders who are at least willing to give it a try or um, either don't have a clue. So there's sort of the I, either those who won't do it and those who can't do it. They become clear pretty quickly. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of a point you made earlier, uh, maybe in closing here, that uh, instead of measuring the results where maybe before supervisors would be measured on, you know, who made schedule, who didn't have any major quality problems or, you know, um, completely results-based evaluation, um, but taking it back more to evaluating how are they performing in terms of the process. So by, by tracking and measuring their, their adherence to process, that, that's what's going to lead to the good results over the long term, I suppose, right? Exactly. So to answer the, the last part of your question, um, uh, dealing with, with people performance is the most difficult, you know, thing that, that managers do for the most part. What happened at Steelcase is that the industry went into um, a, 
a recession of historic proportions that lasted for three years. So there were, uh, and the, the size of the company shrank by 45%. And, and this was after the dot-com bubble burst or, you know, early 2000s, yeah, it, is that right? Mm-hmm. It was the, it was the dot-com bubble. It was 9-11. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, uh, um, the decline in profitability in the Fortune 500, Fortune right. 1000, which is which is the, the base for um, for our for our business. Mm-hmm. So um, there were lots and lots of departures, and when you looked around, the people that you saw um, still in managerial positions, still in leadership positions, tended to be the ones who had um, um, who had embraced lean, um, not just giving it lip service, but were actually um, were actually doing what they needed to do to keep the lean production systems operating. So it wasn't pretty, but mm-hmm. um, uh, but that's how it worked. Well, good. Well, well, David, thanks again for um, sharing your experiences and, and thoughts with us here on the podcast. Um, again, the the book is um, Creating a Lean Culture: Tools to Sustain Lean Conversions, and I'll make sure that there are um, links to the book and uh, more of the topics that you've talked to on the website. Very good. Thanks, Mark. Thanks again for the opportunity. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.